This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Buy the book on BFM 89.9. The Magic Faraway Tree by Enid Blyton. Next day, all the four children woke up feeling very excited. It was so lovely when a really nice land was at the top of the faraway tree. They'd been to the land of birthdays before and the land of take what you want. And, well, the land of goodies had been nice and the land of do as you please. The land of presents sounded just as exciting. I wonder who gives the presents and if you can choose them said Franny. Hello everybody and welcome to By the Book. I'm Lee Chui Lin, joined as always by my fellow faraway tree member, Sharmila Ganesan. Always. I live there half the time. (laughs) Um, So in case that was not a tip-off, today we are going to be talking about really one of, if not the most famous children's authors, Enid Blyton. Enid Blyton is so interesting because... um, You know, so many of us grew up with her and are so shaped by her writing and love her work so much that I think that we almost forget or or perhaps willfully ignore the fact that um, she was also greatly criticized. Uh, She was simultaneously the best-selling and also almost the most criticized children's author, even of her time. And I think because of the power of her writing and how much reach it has, even today, we keep having these conversations about um, mostly her writing and mostly about how to pass on this legacy while also contending with some of the more problematic things. Um, But on the other hand, I think as a person also, she was just really fascinating. So I will say that I think it's almost a rite of passage for people who were introduced to writing, uh, for people who were introduced to reading really via Enid Blyton, because at some point, um, someone will tell you, oh, you know, she was a racist, right? Or, you know, she was a classist or a sexist. And then you have to contend with that issue. Um, As you say, criticized uh, subsequently in the decades since her passing, actually somewhat critically reviled, but even in her own life considered a second-rate author, someone who didn't expand on um, things like vocabulary or empathy. And I think that we'll get to that. But we did also want to say um, right at the start that we both grew up loving Enid Blyton. Oh, for sure. Um, Her signature on the book covers might be the first thing I remember ever repeatedly recognizing and looking for in bookstores. She's probably the first author that I remember name recognition wise and and just seeking out her books. Yes, and that's because she is an... I mean, she was really prolific in her lifetime. So I think some of the more famous series that people would know would be, you know, your famous five, Secret Seven, Mallory Towers, uh, Magic Faraway Tree. But she also wrote unrelated stories, right? There, there were also just little stories about Peter and Jane having adventures in their home or about um, bears doing stuff. I don't know. It's, um, you know, she... Rare she rabbit. Exactly. So she wrote across a, a wide range of forms and stories. Um, but let's start as we... We always do with our bibliography episodes with her life. And um, Enid Blyton lived an interesting life. So she, in some ways, it's very traditional in the sense that um, she grew up, I think, relatively middle class in a family that was 
at first, you know, quite united and then eventually rather estranged. Um, and she went on to the kind of school years that you would read about in St. Clair's and in Mallory Towers. And subsequently, she went on to teaching. So I think for a woman of her generation, in some ways, it was a very typical life. Um, but in other ways, it really was not. And that started at home. Yeah, because the devil is really in the details, isn't it? And with, with Enid Blyton, I think that's really the case because all of those things that you said um, would probably very much be apparent to even a casual reader of her works. The middle class upbringing, the very British lifestyle, the boarding schools, the love for children. But when you look at her personal life, um, so for instance, the fact that her parents really didn't get along. Um, her father and her mother uh, had a lot of disagreements. Her mother, um, I think repeatedly throughout the things that we've read about her, even in Enid Blyton's own autobiography, has never been supportive, has never been um, encouraging of any of Enid's interests, which is, is quite a sad thing to hear when you when you sort of look at it so many years later, um, from the fact that she used to love nature as a child, to the fact that she loved reading, to her writing later on, which, she, which her mother never thought would amount to much. Um, so there's that. And then there's the fact that her father, who was the one that Enid was really attached to um, and who developed her love for things like nature, for example, um, actually left the family when she was um, when she was 13 and went to live with another woman. But because of how shameful all of these things were at that time, um, Enid's mother essentially forced the children to keep it a secret and they had to pretend that the father was just away um, for a really long time. So there are those things and that in itself sounds like a pretty traumatic childhood. Neither of her parents attended her wedding. Um, yes. And I think that by the time they both passed on, she wasn't really speaking um, to either attend, parent. Uh, yeah, exactly. She didn't attend their funerals. And then she also... Um, got married twice. Um, her first marriage was also not a happy one, although it was the marriage um, from which she had two children, two daughters, Gillian and Imogen. And um, by all accounts, it did not sound like the greatest of marriages. Uh, they both had extramarital affairs. She then went on to marry um, someone that she had that affair with. But even the divorce was tricky. And I think that this speaks to we always talk about this in bibliography episodes because we tend to, with the exception of Salman Rushdie, talk about people in completely different um, generations, right? From completely different societies. And in the case of Enid Blyton, a woman did not just have an affair and then get off scot-free back in the day. Not even now, but, you know, back in the day when you are a celebrated children's author, you certainly don't have a personal scandal and then expect that that's not going to come back and haunt you. So even in her separation from her first husband, uh, there was a lot of back and forth over who would file for divorce, who would admit to infidelity. Um, she ultimately went on to cut the father of her children out of their lives entirely and um, essentially he was bankrupted in the end. So I think we're talking about this just also to highlight the fact that it wasn't all happy clappy and that perhaps this is also why there is a rather significant lack of any form of a adults um, in any real way in the books. There, there isn't any real trust in the adults even. We see this come out over and over again with kids who are finding their own way, making their own solutions, whether it's the five or the seven or any of the others. And I think you could argue that it stems from this sort of family background. 
And even the things that she talks about, um, I don't know, I feel like there's a strong strain of um, not having a lot of faith in the world of adults. Um, she repeatedly talks about how um, she doesn't care that people don't think her books are good, that she's only interested in the opinions of people below 12. Um, you know, when she talks about charitable foundations, she's repeatedly uh, extolled the virtues of charities that support children, charities that support animals, um, and about teaching children to be empathetic and teaching children to be kind to each other. Um, and I don't think it's a huge stretch to say that some of this might come from that, I don't know, repeatedly having issues and being let down by the adult world in the in a way that the children's worlds that she creates don't. Um, and in fact, her children's worlds are so full of escapism. Yes. And, and that brings us to the writing, right? Because um, she she wrote a lot. It picked up um, in terms of volume and sheer prolificness in the in the fifties, but overall, um, her path to writing is relatively conventional, even down to the fact that she got rejected a lot. But she won writing contests in school. She was always keen on exploring it, and ultimately, she wrote for newspapers, magazines, and the like, and also went on to publish manuscripts and subsequently all these books that she's known for. Um, so. In some senses, she was always a writer. She's not like some of the other writers we've discussed where they had other careers, came to it later. Um, but if we look at the books, I think that there is also, um, and we'll talk about the stories in a bit, but you don't grow up with her. That That's the thing about Enid Blyton as a reader. Um, if I think about someone like Rod Dahl, for instance, you could conceivably graduate from um, his more simplistic children's books to the more complex ones, um, i.e. from Isiotrot, you go to The Witches, and then eventually you find your way to Boy and Going Solo, and then to his adult works. In other words, you can graduate with him as you mature as a reader. But with Enid Blyton, there is a ceiling, right? Um, she herself said, as you said earlier, not interested in the opinions of anyone over the age of 12. And I think that that's a very particular age. No, I agree. Um, you can you can make a case that some books are slightly simpler. So the Noddy books, for instance, or um, even things like the, the, the shorter stories. Um, and perhaps the upper edge of what you're talking about is probably Famous Five. But none of those really cross that boundary of 12. And you could be 12 and move back to reading Noddy. You could be eight and read Famous Five. I don't think they're hugely complicated in terms of uh, concept or writing. Um, and I think that's a very particular thing. She She's talked repeatedly about her writing process, which is to say there isn't really much. She's a very um, intuitive writer. She says that she sits down, puts her typewriter on her knee, closes her eyes and writes what comes. And it might all sound very airy-fairy, but... That's actually literally how she wrote. And according to her, she could bang out like she she wrote an entire, sorry, one of the adventures books, the Islands of Adventure, I think, in five days, something like 60,000 words. Um, so I think she's that kind of writer. I don't know that there's a huge amount of thought given to, I want this to progress to this age. I want this. But rather, I think she writes what she wants to write and what she thinks is exciting and what she thinks children might want to read. Which manifested in, um, like we said earlier, a huge range of stories, right? Whether or not it was the more childlike, um, almost fable-esque stories in which you have a very simple 
Someone Leaves a Home Has an Adventure Returns and is Safe kind of story. Whether you have the series, whether you have something as simple as Noddy or something a bit more complex. Um, and that's what we'll be getting into after this, her work, right? And what it covered. Let us know, though. We're talking today about Enid Blyton, the much-loved and weirdly much-reviled Enid Blyton. Um, do you remember reading... Enid Blyton as a kid. Um, are her books something that you remember fondly? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, and write to us, of course, at buythebook at bfm.my. Become fabulous millionaires. BFM 89.9. She was tired when they at last reached Mallory Towers. The drive was crowded with cars, and girls of all ages were rushing about, carrying bags and lacrosse sticks. Come on, Zerelda. This is Mallory Towers. Let's get out. Uh-huh. Jean, hello. Oh, hello, Daryl. What about Sally? She's in quarantine. Sickening, isn't it? Oh, dear. Golly, who's that? Some relation of yours. No, thank goodness. She's a new girl. But what does she think she'd come to Mallory Towers for? To act in the films? <laughs> Hello, everybody. You are listening to Buy the Book with Lynn and Sharmila. And today we're looking at Enid Blyton, her life, her works, her impact. And um, we come now to her writing and her stories. So we've mentioned a few. I, I will say at the top that we're not going to mention them all simply because to do so would, would leave us here for a long time. But um, what were some of your favorites? Oh, gosh. Um this is fully me being an adult, so I'm probably telling you the ones that have stuck with me as much as the ones that were my favorites. Definitely the Faraway Tree series. Um, I think the Mallory Towers and Famous Five or Five Find Outers. And I just wanted to jump in and say that earlier you spoke about genre. And I think those three examples give you an idea of the breadth of things that she wrote about. Because really, she wrote about everything. She wrote about mythology. She wrote about mystery. She wrote about adventure and fantasy and school stories. Um, which only in retrospect as an adult, you realize, is really not the easiest thing to do. Um, I didn't mean to digress. I do want to know what your favorites are. The same, um, you know, to probably nobody's surprise. I think that those are among the the best loved ones. I also did really like the circus stories. Oh, um, I loved the circus stories yeah. and the farm ones. I love the farm ones. Because they give you a sense of adventure and a sense of place, right? But I think um, that this leads us to talk about the best and the worst of Enid Blyton, which um, we really need to spend quite a bit of time on because there is a lot to say. And I think the best, um, as, as we... Uh, circling is the fact that she knows how to write for kids. Um, you might not like what she has to say about how children, or you might not like how prescriptive she is in some ways, but the point is that for many people, for hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people around the world, Enid Blyton's stories were hugely formative um, in our childhoods and our imaginations. So she knows how to write for kids. Um, she knows how to infuse a sense of uh, adventure and wonder and a little bit of magic into the works while still having it grounded in, oh, I didn't bring a sandwich faraway tree. Now I'm stuck up here. <laughs> um, and she did that really well. And I think while her characters perhaps are not the most compelling, they're sort of very broad strokes. Um, I think nonetheless, you appreciated how they related to one another. 
I think she writes really descriptively, which is important for children, right? You mentioned sandwiches, but if you think of the things that stick with people, the fact that so many of us grew up craving eclairs when we didn't know what they were or um, wanting cucumber sandwiches, or we could imagine what the lands at the top of the tree were or where the wishing chair took people. Um, These are all things that are vividly described. And I think that's one of her huge strengths that she's a, she knows how children think and she knows how to write to that. Um, but Descriptive, that, but simple. I think that yes. was very crucial. Yes. It's not pages and pages, but somehow it catches you. But along with that, I think comes a certain amount of um, formulaicness um, and a certain uh, reliance on tropes. And again, it's not something that's unfamiliar with even children's writers today. When something works, you don't rock the boat. You just rewrite the formula. So once you've established your five find-outers or the famous five... Why do you keep saying five find-outers? I'm sorry. I have to attack you on this. I've never heard the phrase. So you you and Arvind (laughs) attacked me during another show and the five find-outers are a real series by her. So there's the famous five and they're also the five find-outers. I, mean, I cannot believe that a fellow Enid Blyton fan has never read of Fatty Trotterville, who's the main person in Five Find-Outers. Everyone, you can participate in this. Have you heard of the Five Find-Outers? <laughs> Let us know. Do you also think that that's a ludicrous title and simply not as good as the famous five? No, it isn't. But they're also funnier. Fatty can disguise himself. Okay, well, I'm sorry I interrupted you for that. Please go on. <laughs> but my point was... Um, they're not fabulous characters, you know, they're fairly shallow. They're very one note. So there's the smart one, there's the adventurous one. But there's always a tomboy. There's always a tomboy, which of course we'll get to, to when we discuss the more problematic things. Um, but I'm not sure that that's the worst thing. It's what kept me as a child certainly going back over and over again. So I wanted to return at this point to what you said earlier about her writing process, which, by the way, I found fascinating because she really does say that she sits there, empties her mind and waits for the children to come. And she says she sees the children so, so clearly and that she doesn't even have to think about what she's writing. Instead, the sentences just flow out of her, which is a deeply romantic statement for, um, I'm not sure if we made it clear earlier, somebody who otherwise generally sounded very British and matter-of-fact. And when I say British, I mean British in the 40s, you know, the keep calm and carry on kind of British. And so um, the the fact that she says that is A, interesting, but B, others have pointed out that she didn't travel much. Um, You know, she didn't read uh, necessarily... uh, Well, there are very few references, specific references to other research or books that she'd read. She specifically said, in fact, that she does not do research sometimes because she doesn't want to interrupt the flow of the story. And so it has been pointed out that because of her rather regimented life, um, that the repetition is also a product of that, of the fact that if you're writing what you know and what you know is very specific and almost the same day in, day out, then that's what you'll get in the fiction. And what you know, which is why every time she writes about other countries, they're almost always made up caricaturish. I mean, I hugely enjoyed them as children, uh, as a child, but very caricaturish, right? They all had funny names. Everyone wore funny hats and pantaloons Mm. and walked around talking with weird accents. And that is where is some of the problems, right? Um, But again, I... I don't know. I think there's a huge case to be made that what you read as a child and what you see as an adult are very different things. So let's talk about the problematic stuff. Um, I I think that 
So there's the xenophobia, which you just mentioned. There is the overtly racist um, issues as exemplified by the gollywogs in a number of the stories and how they tend to have all the sort of racist stereotypes you would associate um, with, or, or what racists would associate actually, with uh, people who are darker skinned, for example. And and that was something that comes through. Actually, when you reread it, it's very strong. You sometimes can't find those stories anymore because there has also been a concerted effort to rewrite them. Yeah, so- Gollywogs have been changed to goblins or, or bad teddy bears. Teddy bears. Mm. Yeah. So uh, there has been this uh, retcon in some ways of Enid Blyton's work. But what I find uh, most egregious, aside from, of course, the the racism, which is hugely problematic, is actually the um, the the moralizing. So I this is something that she's also been criticized for, right? And something she's very proud of, in fact, of having a very strict moral framework. It's probably why a lot of parents also liked her because she's a very safe pair of hands to leave your kids in. They're going to return wallets. They're going to come home. They're going to read. They're going to do all the right things. Um, but there is also, um, in reading it, a lot of judgment and disapproval in a lot of the books to any characters who stray from that. Yes, and it's, I think, important to say at this point that a lot of her books, or rather she had a significant chunk of her books that were inspired by the Bible and specifically a very very particular idea of morals and, and uh, what it means to be Christian. Um, and I, so I, it was weird for me because I don't think those books were as publicized here in Malaysia. So I read this book that she wrote called um, The Land of Far Beyond when I was slightly older and where I could recognize some of this moralizing. And that was the first time that I was a bit taken aback, like, wait, is this really Enid Blyton? Um, and what is she writing? How come I didn't realize? And you're right. I think there is a strain of that that goes through all of her other books. They are less obvious in some and, and more apparent in others. Um, I'm not sure. That, and this is something she said herself. One, she doesn't conceal that that's who she is. Uh, and she also says something along the lines of everyone has a moral stand and something they stand for. I dare you to find someone that doesn't reflect it in their work. So in some sense, then... Yes, it's worthy of criticizing and picking apart, but it's also not a covert operation. No. Um, so I'm speaking about it very much from the point of view of a reader, um, purely as a critical reader and mm-hmm. not necessarily as someone who is um, academically dissecting her work. So as someone who loved her work um, and who recognizes that she is a product of her times, by which I mean that um, a lot of the things that we're talking about, whether it is very strict ideas of what is feminine and what isn't, uh, very strict ideas of which races are perhaps better at uh, more more virtuous than others for whatever reason it's not forgivable but it's contextual however what is not contextual is judgment and so I think that's why for me as an adult reader when I revisit things and I expect her books to be uncomplicated and for me to be transported imaginatively in the way that I get from reading um, fairy tales right I don't get that anymore sometimes because I'm like this girl seems perfectly okay. She's a bit impetuous. Um, but you've written her into a corner and you've turned her into a villain. And I'm not sure that that is how um, how I would have liked it. I mean, I'm thinking here specifically of someone like um, Alicia in Mallory Towers. That's who I was thinking of as well. Um, and, you know, mind you, as a child, I hated her. As a child, I was squarely on the on the side of Daryl and, oh my God, why is Alicia so awful? Um, but you're right that as you grow up, you realize things are not that simple and she actually doesn't do anything that's that terrible. Um, so it's a weird thing. Um, also, she's think, 16. 
Yes, yes. And in fact, they're 13 when the books start. So yeah, and, and you can almost make a case that it's because people keep just reading her badly over and over again, that she just becomes worse. Um, the thing that I think bothers me sometimes, though, is the, you talked about retconning and, and fixing. Um, I feel like some things are definitely worth um, revisiting and adjusting. So for overt racism, because also these were things that are a particular product of a particular mindset at a particular time. But certain things like George in The Famous Five, um, you know, as a child, George was one of my first examples of girls that don't have to be girly. And I don't read her, maybe now if I revisit, I might find parts in which that's judged. But it was also hugely empowering to read about a female character that wasn't wearing dresses. In fact, I love George much more than I loved Anne. I remembered it being celebratory. Yes. But, but I could be wrong. That's the thing. I don't know. Um, so much of what we're talking about in terms of reading or rereading Enid Blyton is... Um, it's, it's hard to judge because we loved her so much as a child. And as an adult, we've also heard so much about what was wrong with her writing, which means that in some ways, she's a difficult author to reread objectively because you have so much love and affection um, from your childhood towards her. And you also have a lot of, um, you know, like critical critical examinations of her work that are well-founded as well. You can see how they're well-founded. Um, you know, we talked about Daryl and... Daryl's, of course, the lead character in the Mallory Tower series. And I wouldn't go so far as to say that Daryl's the most feminine of girls. You know, she has um, resolutely short hair. She's kind of tough and spunky. She loves sports. Um, so, and yet that is seen um, as... Daryl is seen as the Enid Blyton avatar, right? She, she has said herself that she identifies with Daryl. So I don't think that this idea of um, being prescriptive with femininity is consistently applied across Enid Blyton's work. I don't think necessarily that she's making a statement that short hair and a desire for adventure means you're less of a girl. No, I don't think so. And and that's where it gets complicated because along with stuff like that and wanting to... So there have been attempts to, or rather newly published versions of Famous Five, take away particular sentences mm. like... Um, you shouldn't. You should be wearing a dress and being a girl. Um, and then far away tree, they renamed Dame Slap into Dame Snap. They took away um, descriptions of corporal punishments in the boarding school books. All of these things are the things that I think needn't be changed. In fact, I think they're ripe for offering conversation between parents and kids. Um, and going back and rewriting these stories, I think take away something quite important because. Are we saying that girls who might prefer not to be quote unquote feminine don't get bullied or have remarks like that made about them? No, they still do. And I think the value of reading that in something like Famous Five is that we're not sugarcoating these things. Again, I might be missing out on things that are genuinely problematic, but I think that updating everything to reflect modern sensibilities often takes away a valuable opportunity for conversations. So I wanted to close off um, by looking at her abiding popularity, because despite the fact that um, she has been roundly criticised, despite the fact that she's been removed from public libraries, from teaching syllabuses, all because librarians and teachers deemed her too simplistic, um, problematic, all these things. Um, they had issues both with the content and the language. She is nonetheless a hugely 
successful and influential author to this day. I think people are still buying Enid Blyton books for their kids. I'm not sure she's ever gone out of publication. And, um, and also, she's particularly popular in the Commonwealth, which I found curious because uh, we are, of course, part of that. And we see that kind of love and devotion extending across Commonwealth countries in particular. Oh, I generations don't... of tea time sandwiches and blancmanges and eclairs and tea. That's what it is. I think it's the after effects of colonialism. But, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a very strange thing. Um, but I did just want to say she's really popular. And do you think that she will remain so? You know, that's an interesting question because a friend of mine um, who has children, who has young children, recently asked me what Enid Blyton titles I would recommend for them. A part of me struggled a little bit because I wasn't sure what to recommend. I off, I kept I kept wondering, do kids these days identify with this stuff? You know, will they find this boring? Um, is this going to be exciting for them? I'm not sure. I think the magic ones, um, the ones that revolve around uh, fairies and the magic faraway tree and the wishing chair, yes, I think those have a kind of enduring quality. But I wanted to point out though, the woman's written. 700 books how do you how does that fall out of popularity i feel just by sheer volume they're going to be around for a while oh my god we forgot to mention that there was a whole movement um to try and downplay her contributions you know by saying that she had employed ghostwriters and that's how she put out that much but she started suing people for saying that she is no francine pascal (laughs) that's that's (laughs) where we find ourselves um but yeah i mean i i agree i think that She's probably not going to fall out of popularity, at least not in this generation, I don't think. But I don't know. You know, I don't know who's to say. I do think that The Faraway Tree is a great introduction. Um, if anybody, yeah, That's the first one I would recommend. So we've been talking today about the life, work and complicated legacy of Enid Blyton. Uh, let us know if you read her as a child, if you enjoyed her work. You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio and write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. <music> brings us to footnotes. Um, And as we usually do in a bibliography episode, we talk about adaptations of the author's work. And with Enid Blyton, it's somewhat curious because I think most of that is going to come down to Noddy. Yes, which I've never watched. I've only Ah. watched a couple of episodes here and there. Um, I never really liked it. The Noddy in the on screen was never the same, which is weird because the visuals look the same. But something about Noddy for me works more reading than watching. I, I never really liked reading Noddy, so the um the show also didn't work for me. Um, but I do think that it it's an interesting one because it came about as a very direct collaboration, even in her life. Um. And also when we talk about adaptations, just to sideline a little bit, she did a lot of collaborations with merchandising. She really was a marketing genius, which we failed to mention um, 
in the main body of the show. But I think it speaks to how her works were adapted, that they went into places like uh, like jigsaw puzzles, like uh, along with TV shows. Yes. Um, and for me, the idea of adapting in Lighten is really quite tough. People have tried so many times. Um, with I, Mostly with that, that space of animated or um, things that appeal to children, the one that I've been wanting to watch and haven't gotten around to is the uh, BBC adaptation of Mallory Towers. We've talked about it before on the show. Um, I've been wanting to watch it and I'd love to see more of those things. So earlier when you asked whether these works would endure, I'd like to actually see them endure. And I don't say this much about um, many books at all. I'd love to see her works being made into things. I'd love to see Magic Faraway Tree, which which is in the works by Sam Mendes. So I'm quite excited, cautiously excited, because I feel like there's so much there. Yes. Um, and in terms of, I think that her work works well as a series or limited series, more yes. so than movies. I don't know if I want 10 famous five movies or five, what is it? Say there it. was a famous five, five find out as you're sorry, <laughs> but there was a famous five TV show and I've, I remember watching it and again, it was a little too, I don't know, it just feels flat when you watch it on, on screen, even it's though Scooby I did Doo. watch it. It's yes. Scooby-Doo because everything, uh, you know, it's formulaic, right? That's the whole point of um, the fives and the sevens and the like. And I think it's why we keep returning to Mallory Towers as uh, something that would be well served for an adaptation. Magic Faraway Tree, obviously, because it is, it's like Narnia. Um, you know, it has children going to a completely different place, encountering strange creatures. There's so many options um, for, for effects, for the way things will look. But Mallory Towers is her best work in terms of sheer drama. There is There are actual stakes. Uh, relationships fall apart and change. I'm, I'm making it sound very prestige. Um, but I do it think... It could be. That's what imagine? I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. So... Um, in a day and age where we have uh, Gossip Girl, where we have your Riverdales and your Sabrinas, um, in some ways, Mallory Towers quite neatly fits into that teenage show tradition, except it's also fairly atas. So, you know, it's Gossip Girl meets Harry Potter. And I think that... Um Compared to all the other shows, Mallory Towers and St. Clair's are where the characters actually develop and grow. They become adults over the course of the books in a way that, um, you know, Five Find Outers and Famous Five and Secret Seven, um, they all remain but almost in stasis. They're, they're a particular age for almost the whole book. They grow a little bit in, along the course of the stories, but not really. Where else the, I think for, for it to work, you need a sort of, the characters need to be rich. And that really only exists in the school stories. So at this point, I'm going to end Sharmila's um, tyranny of propaganda about the five find outers um, and ask what you would like to see adapted of Enid Blyton's work. Um, are there any adaptations that you have enjoyed um, of what she's done, whether it's the Naughty series or any of the other things? Um, and also just in general, do you love Enid Blyton? Do you find her problematic? WhatsApp us 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.